1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we want to look at Paul's lifestyle or Paul's conduct in Thessalonia. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've got 20 verses in this chapter. I'd be surprised if I got through all of them, but beginning with verse number 1. For yourselves, brethren, know that our entrance unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We're happy to have one more opportunity to be able to fellowship. We are pleased that we can share in the word of the Lord. We pray that you give each of us ears to hear tonight. Encourage each one of us as we look into Paul's lifestyle and the way he conducted himself amongst these folks. And Father, we pray you help us apply all of this every day in our Christian life. We appreciate you. We thank you for giving your son to die on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. This is a wonderful letter. Some people believe it's one of the earliest. It may be the earliest letter that Paul actually wrote. The main theme, of course, in this one as in the second one would be the coming of the Lord. And that is a, an idea that is held before the people in every chapter. Of course, when Paul wrote this, it was not in chapters and in verses. It was just a, a long letter. But the way it has been divided up and portioned up and everything like that since medieval times, we've got these chapters, and in every single one of them, somehow it's talking about the coming of the Lord. So we've told you over and over again that the book of Thessalonians is about preparing people for that day. And we know he's going to come, we just don't know when. And, and we know that we're supposed to be prepared for it. The church was born in persecution. The book of Acts tells the story. Chapter 1, Paul gives them information concerning why he's so thankful that he knows them. Their lifestyle, their reputation has spread into different places. But now he takes them into this, this period of remembrance where he's reminding them or encouraging them to remember how he and his team lived among them. So in verse 1 then... He talks about how they first arrived on the scene. He said it was not in vain. There was purpose to it. There was a reason for their coming. But when he speaks about that entrance, he's talking about that first impression that he and his fellow workers made upon the people. Now, it is true when people say first impressions are last impressions. It's very true. If you show up the first day on the job and you don't look like you're ready or prepared, you may do very well for the next three or four weeks, but for a little while, that's all people are going to remember is that first impression, first time they introduced, were introduced to you. If, if you meet someone for the very first time and you decide you want to tell an off-color joke, that may not be natural to who you are and how you really conduct yourself, but that will be something that they remember. Because that's the first thing that, that came out of, your, out of your mouth. When we think of ministers and we think of the, the gospel ministry then, how someone acts when they come among people, that's important. You find a preacher that doesn't like people or 
congregation or has a wife that's gossipy or the preacher is gossipy or he's contentious and constantly creating chaos. And as soon as he comes on the scene, there's trouble and, and discord. I can promise you people are going to remember that. It's it's very difficult to live down a bad reputation. It takes time. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to 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 live it down. You may spend 20 years building a good reputation and then with one act, destroy it. Then it may take you 40 years just to try to live it back up where somebody believes you're trustworthy again. The proverb says a good name is rather to be chosen than riches and gold. So Paul says, think about how we came among you. We did not come among you begging. We didn't come among you lying. We weren't thieving. We weren't stealing. He's going to say that in the verses to come. But he says in verse two, you know how that we were shamefully treated. That means we were persecuted. People did us wrong. We were slandered. We were much maligned. Nevertheless, we were bold in our God to speak. So trouble shouldn't change your character. And bad circumstances shouldn't change your disposition. Your lifestyle, which will be different from just a a momentary lapse when you revert to the flesh or the old man comes alive. But your lifestyle, what you practice every single day, that shouldn't change because geography changes. I should be the same person behind the pulpit that I am outside the pulpit. I should be the same person here that I am in any other country of the world. You should be the same person here tonight as you would be out there on your job or with your family. There should be no change. That's That's Paul's lifestyle. If he's going to leave an example for them and tell them to remember, he wants them to remember the good things about his life and how his conduct was holy and blameless. Surely you don't want people to remember the bad things about you. And if you've had friends that you've known for a long time, going all the way back decades, then it's quite possible if they knew you before you became a Christian, then they probably know things about you other people don't know. So you're not encouraging them to remember that. But you do want them to remember what you were like in your service to God. So Paul says, we came and we exhorted you. There was nothing deceitful about it. There was no duplicity. We weren't unclean in the sense that we were vulgar. But as God permitted us to be in trust of the gospel, we opened up our mouths to speak, not to please men, but the God that tries our hearts. So should a minister... Should a minister take polls of the people in the congregation to determine what he or she should preach to the people? I'd say probably not. Probably not. Once a a minister becomes a a man pleaser rather than a a pleaser of God, then men will come up with all kinds of ideas of things you should do and should not do. Because quite naturally, People in the congregation don't want to hear anything that might offend them or convict them. They don't want to hear something that's going to deal with their heart. They don't want somebody digging around in the corners of their heart saying to them, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. This is what God desires of you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by doing this. And if if you take a a poll, it it can be difficult. I do know denominations that do that. And I've got pastor friends that... In, in, in their church uh, groups, every five or six years, they've got to take, the congregation has to extend a vote of confidence 
I mean, they got to raise their hand and say, we'd like him to stay another seven years. And after three votes of confidence, everything goes well. They don't never have to do it again. But who lasts that long? I mean, most of them are gone after maybe the, the second time. But I, I know for a fact there have been times on a Sunday I, I've gotten up and preached stuff that I know if I would ask for a vote of confidence and said, everybody give me a show of hands, there had been people that said, get out of here. <laughs> See? You, can't, you can't do it that way. So the, to be a man pleaser will cause you to compromise. That's what Paul is saying. He'll cause you to compromise. But God who tries our heart is the one that's paying attention. He tries our heart in that he takes our heart and puts it on a scale and he balances it. He measures it. He pays attention to what directions we're leaning. See? What directions we're leaning. Scripture says we should incline our ear towards the Lord. Incline our hearts toward the way of the Lord. Neither at any time did we use flattering words. You like flattery? Most people do. Most people like praise. I I can't think of too many people that don't like some kind of of praise. The the problem with flattery is that when, when, when people are engaging in it, they're usually looking for something, especially when it's excessive. It is true, the Bible says, let another person praise you. So if you do something, you expect sometimes people to tell you you did a good job, thank you for what you did. You know, that turned out well. So we're not opposed to that kind of thing because God does want us to be able to acknowledge when someone's done something well. But flattery goes over the top and it usually has a motive that's wrong. That's what Paul is saying here. And he said we weren't wearing a cloak of covetousness. It's like somebody going into Thessalonia who's on Paul's team and they're flattering the people in order to get something out of them. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament about some uh, folks that came to the prophet and they wanted a blessing. And so they brought all of these gifts and the prophet said, I don't need any of your gifts. You just get on out of here. But, but the prophet did go ahead and answer the man and helped him best way he could. So the, the man took all of his, his gifts and his goods and his entourage and they started going back home and, and the prophet had a servant and the servant decided there's no sense in the man of God letting all that money get away. So, so he, he kind of way, he said, you know, I need to go check on my mom and, and I'll be back. I'll be back this afternoon. So he, he goes out there, climbs on his mule and he goes riding out after him and he said, I, I caught up with you guys because I wanted you to know even though my master said he didn't want anything from you, a need has arose. And anything you can do to help us, we'll be grateful for. So, I mean, it just gave him all kinds of stuff. And then afterwards, then he got back and the prophet said, you know, I, I, I saw what you did. I saw that. And, and he ended up under the, the judgment of God because of that. So what, what was he wearing? A cloak of covetousness. There are people who lay awake at night and dream up ways, as I oftentimes say, to get your money out of your pocket. You know, And they're, they're looking for ways to, to build themselves up in that way. And Paul goes out of, the, uh, out of his way to say, God is our witness. I, I promise you, I give you my word, we have not practiced any deceit among you. That's what he's saying. And I think that's nice when a minister can say that. People are very wary of someone who they cannot trust. 
I hope I don't ever become that kind of a preacher that nobody can trust. You know, there are a lot of untrustworthy ones out here, but I, I, I don't ever want to be the kind of person where behind my back folks have to say stuff like that. There, there's a cloak of righteousness on him, you see, and, 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 or cloak of covetousness, I should say, on him, and he, he's going out of his way to do this and to do that. We, we don't ever want to live our lives that way because you can't build, you can't build trust when people don't respect you. So Paul says, we haven't even sought glory, not from you or from other people, when, we've, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now look at chapter 1, verse 1 again. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy. So those three are involved with the writing of this letter. Verse 6, Paul acknowledges, First Thessalonians 2, verse 6, he acknowledges that all of them are apostles. So Timothy and Silas are considered by Paul as apostles. Now, neither Paul, Timothy, nor Silas were part of the twelve. But here you see now an extension of the apostolic ministry in that you no longer have to be someone who has walked with Jesus in the flesh and seen him in with, with your own eyes. But now you're, you're someone sent to do a particular thing. And that's what he says as apostles in the plural. Now, what is glory? Glory is what man desires when they want prestige and they want fame and they want honor among men. We, we want to be glorified. You know, if, if you're going to do a billboard and you're going to have pictures on the billboard uh, of three different speakers, then, then naturally you, you want the, the main speaker's picture to be bigger than everybody else's. So, if, if his isn't bigger than everybody else's, then he gets mad. See, that's somebody who wants glory. We had a preacher one time when I lived in Jordan. The church uh, that, where I was assistant pastor of the English congregation, that Arabic-speaking pastor had invited a very popular American minister to come over there and hold services because they knew he was of a Middle Eastern background and his, his parents actually still lived in the Middle East. And so when they wrote the letter, he, he said he'd come, but he said he would only come if he received a letter from the king of Jordan inviting him. That's, that, that's what he said. Now, I don't understand why the church didn't just leave it alone, but they, they went on and petitioned the king and, and they ended up with a letter. And sure enough, when, when the man got there, they, they had a, a, uh, a uh, red carpet coming from the airplane that, that kind of led right to the airport. And the preacher got off, and, and he had that, that whole sort of a thing. And, and when he got to his hotel, it was a beautiful hotel, the Arab church barely could even afford the thing. But they had him in a hotel that probably cost $250, $300 a night. And, and he got in there and decided he didn't like any of the curtains. Now, he's only there for two nights. He didn't like any of the curtains, didn't like the bed, didn't like the spread. He had them take it all out. And he purchased all this new stuff to put up there just so he could see it for the next 48 hours. And, uh, and, and sure enough, when he left, uh, they, he didn't get invited back again. Now, 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 that's someone that is looking for something that you really don't need as a minister, a little bit more glory, you know. But there are a lot of preachers like that. Once they get a little bit of popularity, they have a few crowds, then they honestly believe that they're dignitaries and they should be invited by a head of state in order for them to come into that country. OK, 
Can you think of any head of state that ever invited Paul to come and preach? He just came into the area and started proclaiming the word of God. And the scripture says he boldly preached the gospel. He came with the message that Jesus, born of a virgin, lived without sin, died on the cross, was buried, raised again. He went to heaven. He's coming back. He preached that gospel to the people, even when they didn't even understand it and they persecuted him. That's the message. But verse seven, he says, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse that cherishes her children. He's saying we were very nurturing. That's what he's saying. We, we, had a, we had a very nurturing ministry towards you. We wanted to see you grow up like a tender plant and flourish. So we were doing what we could to help you develop. That's what the man of God was doing with his team. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel only, but also our own souls because you, all of you, were dear to us. So impartation takes place through the transmission of the gospel. You can impart life to people with knowledge. You can impart the gospel to people by communicating truth to them. That's impartation. Once a person begins to hear the gospel and they're standing in darkness and life suddenly is imparted to them, they can change. They can take the step out of the, the world of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear son. So all of us can be involved with that. The transmission of knowledge, the impartation of life. Paul says this is something that he was trying to give to them and also a part of who he was. See, when you spend time with people day after day and you get to know them and you understand their heart and you learn their mind and their ways of thinking. It won't be long before you begin to use some of their phrases. You begin to talk like them. You begin to see certain situations in the same way. And you probably got family members that when certain things come up, something your grandfather used to say comes back to you. Mm -hmm. Something that your mom used to say. Suddenly it comes back to you. And that's because they imparted something to you through relationship. You can't get it any other way. There are many conferences in America today where people are having impartation conferences where uh, they'll, they'll bring a, a very good preacher, good minister, seasoned minister, and, and hundreds of people to come out to hear him. And then at the end, they all line up in the front, and then they want the preacher to come and just impart all of his ministry into these different people. But it doesn't happen that way. Someone that's been in ministry for 50 years, he can't just lay hands on somebody and give somebody 50 years of wisdom. He can lay hands on people and pray for them and bless them and ask God to do wonderful things. But the way you have impartation come into your life is the same way Elisha received it from Elijah. You spend time with someone. You live with someone. You learn from someone. And then pretty soon you start thinking those same thoughts. Two people, when they've been married a long time, you, you can sit down with, with both parties and, and start a conversation, and it won't be long. The one can finish the other sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guarantee you, as long as Tiffany and I have been married now, you can probably ask her just about anything you want to ask me, and she can tell you what I think about it. Yeah. But most of you have been listening to me long enough to where somebody from around town could ask you, what does Brother Darrell believe about this? And you could probably tell them. See? Yeah. You think Brother Darrell would be in favor of that? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So verse number nine. 
We remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. In certain locations, when Paul went, he actually worked. He was bivocational. He had excess income coming in from something that he was doing on the side. Now, labor and travail. They knew him intimately. They knew the difficulties of his life and trying to establish that church there amongst the Thessalonians. And he says laboring night and day. They knew everything that was going on. Sun up, sun down. They saw the, the toil and the, and the pain in his life. And he did not want his life and, and Timothy's life to be a burden to them. So he went out of the way to make sure that they would not be a burden. Uh, can a minister be a burden? Yes. Yeah, anybody can be a burden. That, that, that happens. I mean, we don't ever want to be a burden, but it certainly can happen. I, I've known occasions where, in, uh, I'm thinking of a church in Cleveland, Ohio, a preacher that I know. Now, here's a congregation when he got there, had over 200 people. Congregation has kind of gone down and gone down and gone down to, to the point where He'd driven all the younger people away, so there's mostly older people left on the fixed income. And as the younger people leave and as the older income folks stay, then every year, even though the, the monies are going down, he's asking for an increase in salary every year. You see? And, and, and pretty soon, that becomes a great burden. Great burden. And I'll tell you another story about, about preachers. And the denomination I was raised up in, Church of God in Christ. Every year on the pastor's anniversary, the congregation had, they have to all get together and give the pastor a monetary gift. So that means all the auxiliaries in the church, I mean, Sunday school, choir, women's group, men's group, all of them throughout the year having these different fundraisers so they can save up all this money so they can give the pastor a gift on pastor's anniversary. Now, you've you got to understand that every year you want to outdo what you did last year. So, so I, I've known preachers doing that who, aside from their salary, $50,000 gift, yeah, pastor's anniversary. I told Tiff a long time ago, we need to run. We, we, we need to run. But, but think about that. Now, that's, that's just that situation. I, I also, I, I've seen it where uh, they, they, the churches, where they have your tithes, your offering, then pastor's aid. You ever heard of that? Pastor's aid. Yeah, pastor's aid. Your tithe is your 10%. Your offering is what you're giving above and beyond that to bless the church for different things that are coming on. Pastor's aid is 18%. That's your gift. Yeah. I know a whole lot of people in the, in the cities doing that. Thank God we're out here in Heartland. I'm telling you. Them eyes are getting big and then, whoo, praise the Lord. Amen. So verse 10, all of you are witnesses in God also how... In a holy way and in a just way and unblameably, we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Behaved themselves without blame. In a way that's holy, in a way that's correct. Now, there are things preachers should do and should not do. Things they should avoid. 
in order to maintain this testimony. And I'll give you some examples of this here in, in just a few moments. But the scripture says to abstain from even the appearance of evil. Understand that? If it looks wrong, just stay away. Now, the reason for that is as a Christian, you don't have to be doing wrong, but people will think you're doing wrong. One time when I first came to Nebraska, and uh, I, I was in Red Cloud, and I needed to make a U-turn. And I turned around in the parking lot of the state liquor store. I did. Turned around in, in, in the parking lot of the state liquor store. And, and so about a day and a half later or so, somebody says to me, uh, Pastor, is everything all right? I said, I said, I believe so. Why is there something I need to know? Is there, well, some, somebody in town said they, they saw you pulling out of the parking lot at the liquor store. We just wanted to know, is everything okay? I said, of course, everything's okay. I said, I was making, making a U-turn. Oh, okay, I just wanted to mention that because I, I just wanted to mention that. Okay, well, well now, now you, you see how this works? Haven't even, haven't even done anything wrong, but somebody thought I had just from something somebody said, you know. Uh, uh, the preachers used to tell a story about a, uh, a man who, he and his, uh, I'm trying to think, might have been some other preachers were getting together and they wanted to maybe have a few hot toddies and, you know, stuff like that at this deal that they were going to be at and, and so they, they were talking to themselves. They said, now, none of us can go in one of these stores that's selling the alcohol around here. We've got to drive outside the community. Definitely can't go in the liquor store around here. But, but we've got to have this stuff. And, and so, and, and these were Baptist folks, okay? Just so you know, these were Baptist folks. And, and so, and so they, they convinced one of the preachers to, to, to be the one to do that. And so he, this man drove, I'm telling you, two and a half hours in the opposite direction just to try to get somewhere where nobody would know who he was. And, and of course, he, it, it was wintertime, so he kind of had one of them long coats on, pulled his collar up, and just had a, you know, had a nice hat on and kind of went in there and just kind of, you know, going in a sneaky way. And then when he gets in there and he kind of takes his hat off, pulls the thing back, then the man behind the counter says, Reverend, what are you having today? <laughs> Think of that, okay? A true story. Well, a, a minister has to be able to be careful with how he conducts himself. Now, now Tiff and I have a rule, and, and this rule is, and we've had this ever since I ever since I got here. Uh, any women that are my age, I, I don't spend any time alone with them. If if we got counseling, we got to do that. Tiffany's gonna be with me or talk to him on the telephone, but uh, no alone time because anything can happen. It only have to be true. All it takes to destroy a minister is an ex- accusation. It doesn't even have to be true. Same thing with Tiffany. So we we've always had a rule that that for the um, for for the. For the little ladies, she, she would always say, if they're under eight and over 80, you may kiss them on the cheek. <laughs> now, there, there's a little leeway in there, okay? There's, there's some leeway in there. There's some leeway in there. And, and if, 
And if, if, if occasions occur where I've got to go long distance, you're not short distance, but long distance with, with a lady that's my age and I've got to drive, they get in the back seat. You say, why? Because I'm a chauffeur. And then if they're being chauffeured, then if we're driving by, nobody can look and say, well, I saw them in the front seat. Looked like they were holding hands. He had his arm all right. Can't do that from the back seat. You see, see, just just a matter of preservation of testimony. I've never wanted any man to ever feel like they had to be nervous with me around their spouse. It's a matter of conducting ourselves. So I want to preserve my testimony. I want to preserve the lady's testimony. too. That's powerful. Now, as I said, when, when, when they're younger, young enough to be our daughters and all that kind of stuff, and old enough to be mom and grandpa, we don't have any problem at all. We're just having fun. Okay, so th- this is just wisdom. I'm just sharing with you some of the things that, that, that we've done. So verse 11, as you know, and we've exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. That is exactly what Paul saw himself as, a father figure to these Thessalonians, that you would walk worthy of God who called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now, you need to know that's who called you. It's the Lord. God is the one that put this thing together. He's the one that designed for you to serve him and to live close, close with him. And he wants you to walk worthy of the vocation to which you've been called. You're a Christian, be a Christian. Be a Christian all the time, not just sometime, but walk worthy of God. When you tell your kids as they're growing up, look, you carry our family name. You make sure you conduct yourself the right way out there in that community. What are you saying? Walk worthy of this name. Don't be out there uh, dragging our name through the gutter. Don't be out there lying and not keeping your word. But, but make sure that when people mention, mention our name, that they recognize here are some good people. The scripture says a wise son brings honor to mom and dad, but it also says a, a bad child brings uh, shame to mom and dad. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Verse 13. It's for this reason that we give the Lord thanks without ceasing, because when all of you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. So he said, you accepted us as spokesmen of God and believed what we were saying, just like God himself was talking to you. And that's a, that's a good way to, to listen to, to ministers. The, the only thing I could add about this that's cautionary is you at least want to know what the truth is so that you can have some idea whether or not the minister is actually ministering truth. If you don't follow him or her in Scripture, how are you ever going to know what they're saying is of God? Because sometimes... You can be looking at something in black and white. The person up ministering will be saying something totally contrary to what's here. And then you've got to start asking the question, why is there disconnect here? This is pretty plain, but you're saying the opposite of what the scripture says. And you've got to be able to to, to harmonize that and see why that is, is occurring. Paul speaks in another place of people that handle the word of God deceitfully. That means they twist the word in order to fit Certain things, we don't want to do that. If, if I say to you the Bible says thievery is wrong, that does not mean thievery is wrong for everybody else, but it's all right for you. It means thievery is wrong, period, in all places at, at all times. 
Now, somebody might come along and say, well, we, we gave some considerable thought to that, and we really feel like maybe we shouldn't call it thievery. Because after all, when you call somebody a thief, you know you, that you, you are making them feel bad, and we don't want to make people feel bad in this world. So let's, let's find new ways of describing it. If, if someone lifts something from your property, we'll tell them they should not do that. No, we're going to call them a thief. That's what we're going to call <laughs> Somebody's got sticky fingers, and they, every time they come to your house, something disappears. That's not good. Paul says, when the person ministered the word of God to you, receive it as though it truly is God's word that's speaking to you. Now, he says, as it is in truth, the word of God. That's what the Bible is, the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. It's not the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. There's a difference. If we say the Bible contains the word of God, then we're saying there are parts in Scripture that come directly from God and they're holy and they're true. But there are also maybe some parts mixed in there that are not from God. But if we say the Bible is the word of God, then from Genesis 1 straight out Revelation 22, we're saying all of this is the word of God. And there's nothing in it that, that we need to run away from or shun. That's important. There are many, many parts of Scripture today that people want you to shy away from. They don't want you to read. They'll say they're not applicable for the time in which we live. And the whole time somebody's up there preaching, they'll tell you this is the word of God. And if you're not looking at what they're saying, then you'll realize, okay, there's somebody, somebody's misleading me here. Misleading me. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's Timothy. For we have not received cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the coming of the Lord. We gave unto you what we've received from the Lord. How that God himself, through his prophets, ministered the word of God through the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven. That's over in Peter. Those verses are just tied, tied together. If someone takes a scripture and then ministers from that scripture... You need to know, are they ministering that scripture or are they ministering far from that scripture? I've seen people do that. Take a text, read the scripture, and the scripture was only necessary for their title. And then what they're ministering doesn't have anything to do with the scripture that they actually read. They just needed the scripture for the title. You see? Verse 14. For brethren, you became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So he's saying right here in Thessalonians, your own brethren have persecuted you the same way the Jewish people have persecuted their brethren in ancient Palestine, where the church was formed, where the word of God was preached. He's trying to demonstrate to them that this gospel will produce hostility and animosity amongst blood kids. You fall in love with the Lord, and you somehow or another turn from the traditional religion and become passionate about God. There'll be some people in your family that'll give you a whole lot of problems. They say, How dare you turn from this? This has been right for centuries. This has been right for a long time. Who are you now to move in another direction and say it wasn't as accurate as we thought? That's what happens every time somebody ministers to people in Africa, and then uh, people have to walk away from animism, witchcraft, 
I knew a story one time of a young man who moved from uh, a little village in Uganda. He moved to Kampala, capital city. He moved in with his sister, and he was going to go to university. And after he got there, his sister, after a few days being there, his sister died. She was a prostitute. She had AIDS. But she was going to put him up and try to help him get through school as she sold herself out on the street just to have some money to get him out of the village so he can better himself. Well, she died. He didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have any money. So he was walking down the main street in the capital city, and he saw a church sign. And then it had the name of the church, so he heard some music, so he just wandered in there. He didn't have anywhere to go, nothing to do. So he sat down in there, listened to what they had to say. It was all in their language. You know. And afterwards, the pastor and them talked to him, found out he was from a small village. He didn't know God. They led him to Christ. After they led him to Christ, he became a strong soul winner for the Lord. He wanted to witness to everybody, but he immediately starts saying to the pastor and his wife, please come to my village and preach to my family because if what you're saying is true, these people are lost, they need God, and they're getting old and they're dying. You've got to get there as soon as you can. Well, these people didn't want to go out into the bush because they knew out in the bush everybody didn't always wear clothes. Folks were cannibals. Just bad stuff happened. Now, they, they didn't want to go. But he kept putting the pressure on them. So after, after several months, months of uh, just, just being pressured, they said, okay, we'll go set it up. And, and so he set it up. They made the long trip hour after hour in one of these big old vehicles trying to get out there into that bush country. And when they got to the, the man's uh, father's house, he, the father had all the family sitting out there, just sitting right there in the living room. And, and that young man walked in there. I don't know, it might have been 30 people there but a bunch of folks from the family and some people from the village and, and and got him in there he said to the pastor now this is my family he said to the family this is my pastor he's going to tell you something you all need to know and so then he just start translating and just start telling them the story of the lord jesus christ and then afterwards the, the father gets up everybody just sitting there it's quiet the father stands up and says okay we'll all accept jesus christ how you like that the dad just told everybody you're getting saved whether you want to get saved or not all of us are going to accept this Jesus. And that's what they did. They all accepted Christ. They left there, went to the hospital where the man's brother was working because he was unable to make it to the meeting. He got there to explain the gospel to him, told him what dad said. He became a Christian. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then they, but they had asked that father before they left the village. They said, how, how is it that, that, that you accepted this so readily when there are so many other people who just can't believe this so quickly? He said, well, like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when I was a young man, I, I was able to make it to one of the, the big cities. And he said, he said, I had one of those. Uh, no, 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 no. This is how it happened. He said, I used to have one of those transistor radios. And he said, they used to have the BBC and all that stuff would come on. And he said, one night I was listening and there was somebody in there preaching and they were talking about this Jesus person. And he said, I, I was just so captivated by what this, this person was saying. And he said, afterwards, when he finished the message, he said they never gave an opportunity or told anybody how to become a Christian. He said, all these decades I waited for somebody to come and tell me, and then here you came. And he said, where were you 30 years ago? Said, My mother would have accepted this. My father would have accepted this. My grandparents would have accepted this. Yeah, took a while to get there, but they got there. This is why we have to do what we can. 
So Paul says in verse 14, the same way you folks are being badly treated by your own brethren that happened to the churches in Palestine. And look at verse 15, and it gives you the the, uh, details. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, these two verses of Scripture here, you can put a mark or an asterisk or something by because I'm telling you, you, you will read books in, in Easter time. You're going to see documentaries, and there will be people that will tell you there is not one verse of Scripture in the Bible that says the Jewish people were culpable for the death of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they will say that over and over again. And whenever they talk about the gospel, they will always say it's the Romans who did it. They said, them Romans killed you. If you say the Jewish people were involved with the death of Jesus, you're anti-Semitic. And, and my response has always been, look, I mean, we're we not, these aren't hate texts. These are historical texts that reflect what people believed at that time. But if, if you're going to say, if we say Jewish people were uh, part of the, the, the murder of Christ, and, and you say we're anti-Semitic, if, if you put all the blame on the Romans, are we anti-Indo-European? Okay, see, because Semitic is just a word that covers a bunch of different groups of people in the Middle East, not just the Jewish people, covers the Arabs, covers the Ethiopians who speak a Semitic language, the people on the island of Crete who speak a Semitic language. If, if you say the Romans are the ones, are we supposed to just say all the Europeans are guilty? Now, my point is this. Paul, in his preaching, when he told the story, the reason the Jews were so opposed to him is because as he preached that they crucified Christ, that was saying to them, we have missed our moment. The Messiah came. And all the prophets in the Old Testament that we one by one, we ended up persecuting and they died under our hand. And that's what Jesus said. You know, the prophets, no, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem and all these kind of things. But the, the, the many times that Israel went apostate, then came back, went apostate, came back, went apostate, came back. It all culminated with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to say God turned his back on them, is not interested in them at all. There's a whole lot in Scripture about the prophecies for Jewish people in the last time. But this is to acknowledge that Paul, a Jew, a former Pharisee, affirms emphatically, who was involved with the death of the Lord and the prophets and are now persecuting him. They don't even want us to tell the story to the Gentiles. Why? Because if the Gentiles hear the story, if the nations of the world hear the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they themselves are also going to believe we missed our moment. That's what they're going to think. And we don't want that kind of shame upon us. So this is part of the story. You can't tell the story of the death of Jesus without it, though. So as a, as a Christian, then, what, what, what is our position and how should we approach this? Just tell the truth. Okay? Just quote the scripture. You don't have to get up and try to uh, absolve the Jewish people of any kind of participation in this or the Roman people. Just, just quote the scripture. Here's what the text says. Now, the only thing they can say is, I believe it or I don't believe it. They might go so far as to say, well, I don't believe Paul really wrote that. Somebody put that in there. Well, he must have put it in a lot of places. Because every one of the Gospels, when it tells the story 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. It talks about his betrayal by the religious leaders and the elders. And I've, for the last seven or eight weeks, been ministering through Luke 22. On a series called, This is What They Did to Jesus. Just explaining what has taken place. And, and shortly we'll get into Luke 23. But let me finish up this chapter. Didn't think I'd get this far. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Paul misses them. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. You can see the devil can put obstacles in your way, and you can see Paul believes in a real personal devil. He believes there's an evil adversary, spirit, that goes out of his way to hinder people from promoting the cause of Jesus Christ and from proclaiming the gospel around the world. And he'll do whatever he can to shut it down. If he has to attack you, he'll do it. If he has to attack your friends, he'll do it. If he has to attack your family members, he'll do it. Anything to keep the gospel from going forward. But even though Satan hindered him, he did not defeat him. So the devil, he can, he can work to slow us down, but he can't quite stop us. That's, that's what I want you to see. We, we, we may be hindered, but we're not defeated. Yeah. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For all of you are our glory and joy. He's saying, look, even though we're being attacked by the adversary, and he's resisting us on every hand. The one thing that inspires us to go on and continue despite all the obstacles and difficulties is the fact that one day we know that we're going to have all of you in the presence of the Lord when he comes. We'll be gathered together with him. He's going to say that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be gathered together with him in the clouds. So as a Christian then, we rejoice and we hope Because the Lord Jesus is actually coming back. When is he coming back? I have no idea. He is. He said, well, Pastor, we've been hearing for a long time and for most of our life that the Lord is going to return. And I hope you keep hearing it. Because the Bible says this is the hope that purifies. Believing that the Lord is going to come back causes you to walk closer to God. It causes you to walk a straight line. Because if you really believe that the Lord could come back today... It'll affect how you live your life today. If you believe he'll come back next week, it'll affect how you live your life between now and next week. Think about it. If, if we thought, right now it's, it's 747, 748. If, if we thought that Jesus was coming back at exactly 10 minutes to 8 p.m. this evening, I guarantee it'd affect everything in here. You'd be sitting there saying, I wish he'd shut up so I can get on my face and talk to God and I mean, you, you just ignore me because you're trying to get everything settled, you know. Like the old hymn said, the old account was settled long ago. You start working on the newer account and everything that needs to be dealt with. So he's going to come, and when he pierces the clouds and the trumpet of God sounds, Christians all over this earth are going to be gathered together to meet with him. And as the Bible says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And for this reason, he says, you're our glory and our joy. 
He rejoices when he sees them because he knows they're going to be part of that great group that's going to meet with the Lord. I, I can't wait, folks. I'm telling you, it's going to be powerful. Oh, my. Can you imagine an eternity with us just fellowshipping? Can you imagine that? Can, can, you, can you see me just showing up at your mansion anytime I want? Look, folks, none of us are going to be married. We so we just show up and come in there and just do everything that we that that, that we want to do as, as far as fellowshipping and all of that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome time. Nobody's going to have any pain. Nobody's going to have any difficulty. There won't be any shortages or too much of an abundance of money. There won't be anything like that. The only thing there'll be is just fellowship and us spending time with God. I'm I'm looking forward to that. I'm I'm telling you, we're going to get to heaven, folks. It's not going to be any wheat bread. No almond milk. No, no. I don't mean none of that. We're going to get to heaven. And we're going to, have, we're going to have some real stuff that the Lord is going to prepare for us to put a smile on everybody's face. There'll be some collard greens and pig feet. And there'll be all that good stuff there. Come on, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful. We love you. We thank you. We honor you. We're learning so much as we walk through this book. God, if you teach us anything... Help us to remember to honor you, serve our testimony, and to live closely with you, God. Because there's nobody like you. We look forward to that day when we can see you. We, we, we want to hasten your returning, Lord, because there's something inside of us that wants to be absent from this body because we know it, it is to be present with you. So thank you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.